Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. This episode of Dialogues in Dermatology has been sponsored by Bristol Myers Squibb. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology podcast, March 6, 2022. I am Dr. Brad Glick, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist and director of the Dermatology Residency Training Program at Larkin Palm Springs Hospital and clinical assistant professor of dermatology at the FIU Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine in Miami, Florida. I will be your host. Today's topic will identify and review gaps in research in psoriasis. Joining me today is Dr. Neil Corman, MD, PhD. Dr. Corman is a professor of dermatology at Case Western Reserve University and senior attending physician at the University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. He is also the director of the clinical trials unit in the Department of Dermatology at UHCMC. In addition, he serves as the clinical director of the Murdo Family Center for Psoriasis, a comprehensive psoriasis research, education, and treatment program. In addition to being board certified in dermatology, Dr. Corman holds subspecialty board certification in dermatologic immunology, diagnostic, and laboratory immunology. He is a member of the American Dermatologic Association, a psoriasis expert research group member of the American Academy of Dermatology, and emeritus member of the Medical Advisory Board of the National Psoriasis Foundation and a member of the International Pemphigus and Pemphigoid Foundation Medical Board. Dr. Corman has published over 200 articles in the peer-reviewed literature, and since 1997, he has been the principal or co-principal investigator in more than 100 clinical trials, the majority of which have involved psoriasis, including trials of all the major biologic agents approved for psoriasis. Neil, welcome. Thanks for joining us on Dialogues. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So let's jump right in. You know, we're talking about gaps in research and psoriasis and maybe gaps in general. Where do we look to identify gaps in our evaluation, workup, and management of psoriasis and let's say psoriatic disease? Where do we go for that? Well, fortunately, psoriasis is an important enough disease in dermatology that over the years we've devoted a lot of time in the arena of getting expert opinion. So about I don't know, it's pushing 15 years ago now, I think the first set of guidelines started to come out about how to take care of patients with psoriasis. And there were, there were a series of, I believe, six articles, if I'm not mistaken, that addressed what was the disease and what were the comorbidities and what were the drugs and how did you take care of a patient? And that stuff was very important. And then about five years ago, Everybody said, the world has changed a lot. We had many, many new drugs in that period of time. So it was time for a new set of guidelines, updated guidelines. And I have to say the second set of guidelines were dramatically better than the first. The first felt like at times that we were like quoting the package insert. And there wasn't a lot of interpretation of what the data was, whereas the second set of guidelines was so much better in that regard and so much more explicit about what to do if only people would read them. It's interesting to me because in hearing you say this and remembering we were waiting for those guidelines forever, I think the last guidelines were Alan Mentor and others, you know, led that again this time as well. People like yourself involved in the guidelines over the years, but I agree completely. They made them more real world and practical as well. 
and then really put it together with all of the new, you know, we have topical therapies. There are even some topical therapies that have come to market recently that have not even been part of these guidelines. But I really think they made it more modern day, more real world, and more practical. Speaking of the guidelines, which you highlight, and we had those starting back in 2019 and then another series in 2020, and really a nice update for what we have in our toolbox and also how we look at psoriasis patients. So we've had a lot of scientific study in bench and clinical trial research, which is identified and included in the, the guidelines themselves. But in your opinion, what impact has these guidelines had? Have they amassed more gaps? Did they fill some of the gaps? What impact have they had on our management uh, of psoriasis patients and, and individuals with psoriatic disease in general? And maybe even dig a little bit deeper as to maybe what gaps there still are uh, and have they been filled? And if not, how we fill them? I know that's a lot of questions right there. But, well, but well, the questions, like the questions, I'm ready for it. Bring it on, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Let me talk first about what you asked about last. Is, are, there, are there still any gaps left? And the answer is absolutely. There's many gaps. Almost all of the studies that have been out there, except for maybe a, a brand new one that has just was approved, I don't know, in the last six months or so, have looked at chronic plaque psoriasis. And so we don't have data on, you know, of guttate psoriasis. We don't have data on palms and so it's clinical trials devoted to these specific areas. So to palmal plantar disease, there is a little bit of data there. Some of the biologic companies have had some data there specifically to full-on studies for palmal plantar disease, not just a study where the patient had all bad psoriasis all over and they happen to have palmal plantar disease. There's not a whole lot of data on the elderly. There's not hardly any data on pregnant patients. There's not a whole lot of data on people of color. That's uh, HIV patients. That's several subgroups where there's gaps or, you know, patients who have a history of malignancy or patients who have aren't chronic immunosuppression. You know, there's tiny, tiny little inklings of data on some of these things. And I don't know that we're ever going to get the level of data that we need for. There's not going to be like devoted clinical trials for many of those subsets. But, you know, we're going to learn more in the trenches, as you call it, day-to-day -day use, maybe some series, patient series of patients. So you have a case report, and then you have a case series, and then you have a small clinical trial, and then you have a large randomized control phase three clinical trial that's for registration to get a drug approved, right? So those are the different levels of evidence. So I doubt we're getting to either of the last two, but we'll get at least hopefully to case series of good numbers of patients for some of those subgroups. All right. So help me with the or with the first questions that you were asking. Well, one of the things is just kind of a follow-up comment and you know, more of an observation to your comments, which is so apropos, and that is that there's very few dedicated studies. You know, I can think of Sekikinyama, for instance, one of the biologic therapy. They did a U.S. scalp study. And, and there have been some other small ones. In fact, same drug. They did a nail study that a palmar plantar. But to your point, we don't have this detailed data that is specific for those difficult to treat areas, for instance. And we'll usually get that classical post hoc analysis, uh, which is just that bigger group and then they extract out those individuals. But I don't know how realistically practical that is because it doesn't focus on the specific disease. And I would take it even one step further, while guttate psoriasis perhaps is a different animal <laughs> as it relates to generalized plaque psoriasis, to your point, we really don't have any data on that. We, we hear the same things over and over again, group A beta hemal extract, some other viral condition may, may set it off, but nevertheless, there's not really been 
a lot of specific study. Do you feel that in your clinical practice, do you look to guidelines to kind of determine some of your treatment selection as it might relate to the what we've learned in the guidelines regarding therapies or perhaps even comorbidities? And, and that'll segue into our next question. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I mean, as you alluded to, I was involved in the guidelines, but but I'm getting old, so I don't remember what's written always. So I go back and I look at it and see what's there. Even at times when I wrote it, I'm still like, yeah, okay, let me see. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where is this paper? Let me take a look. So yeah, I definitely do look to the guidelines to help me make decisions in in particular clinical scenarios. You know, when I'm in clinic with my residents, they're looking at me. They say, so what's the answer, Dr. Corman? And I say, eh, why don't you go look it up? And then we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> Good learning experience, right? So are there gaps in our understanding of comorbidities? What is the significance of such? What are the role of comorbidities when we're making our therapeutic selections? Well, I think comorbidities are critical, simple kinds of things like well, generally speaking, you don't want to put a patient on a TNF inhibitor if they have severe heart disease or they have multiple sclerosis. And you don't want to put a patient on an IL-17 inhibitor if they have inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. So generally speaking, those are the, that's the, the simplistic answer of how you think about comorbidities and treatment guidance. But, you know, it's much broader than that. It's like, okay, so you see this patient and they have severe psoriasis, and they have severe psoriatic arthritis, and, well, they had a heart attack, and get them to the cardiologist, okay? You know, I mean, that's the way I think about comorbidities. If they haven't already been to the right specialist, it's time to get them to the right specialist. You know, and they're 100 pounds overweight, and, you know, all the various things, and there's so many new things happening. You got to pay attention. All the action with the, oh, I just blanked on the class, but but the drugs now that are the anti-obesity drugs, the diabetes drugs that at low doses are used for diabetes and at higher doses are now being used off-label to treat obesity and have a 20% weight loss of, of body. I mean, it's amazing. These drugs are absolutely amazing. And I think they're critical for our patients with psoriasis. We need to be aware of them. We still need to teach these patients that, guess what? You need to eat less. Guess what? You need to move. Guess what? You need to get a program. And the, the answer is not located only in a drug, but it's maybe a one-two punch for some of our peeps. Yeah, I'm hearing collaborative care. And the collaborative care is not only inclusive of our, our colleagues, like get me to a cardiologist right away, like you're saying, but it's really collaborative co-management or, or multidisciplinary approach. You know, I, I think of emerging comorbidities as a follow-up to the classical comorbidities you allude to, psoriatic arthritis, our rheumatology, our partners, IBD, important in the background. But I think we've even expanded that a little bit too. Um, you know, people with uveal disease and psoriatic disease, I think we have to partner up with our ophthalmology colleagues, uh, you know, here and there as well too. Even pulmonary, I find myself seeing more chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a lot more chronic kidney disease in our psoriasis patients. And so I, mean, I think for me, to your point, we have to look at the whole patient. I think the cardiovascular story, one that our colleague Joel Gelfand talks a lot about, you know, cardiovascular disease and psoriasis this comorbidity is just crucial that we get these patients well. And to your point as well, Neil, it's not just about that drug. It's not all about that drug. It's about that collaborative care. I want to shift gears a little bit. And as we close, maybe talk a little bit about your perspective on where we are now. And I'm kind of thinking therapeutically, we talked about gaps in research, so we did such a great job on that. 
But where are we now, perhaps, in our therapeutic armamentarium? You know, what we've had that's a little bit older that maybe we don't use as much, where we are with our current systemic therapies, maybe make a couple of comments about your approach, and maybe even collaborative therapies like combining biologics with other agents or combining biologics with even topicals, which of course we do all the time, but there's new things in the toolbox. So another Glick question, Dr. Corman, there you go. I've got like seven questions in one, but see if you can tackle that one. You glicked me. <laughs> I did. Verb now. It's a verb now. Okay. So yeah, collaborative care. I totally agree with you. And you know, there's many other specialties, the hepatologists. I, I, I used to work with them a lot more when I was using more methotrexate, but, but I still work with them now when the person's way overweight and lo and behold, I've looked at their liver functions or they got hepatitis, you know, little things like that. And I need hepatology involved. I think that what's important as we close here is to kind of look at where we are now therapeutically. How do you see our therapeutic armamentarium? Are there gaps there? You know, we're talking about gaps, but where are we with our therapeutic armamentarium? In my humble view, what we have now compared to even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, is remarkable. And it's not just all about that biologic. We've got other things too. We've got new oral systemic therapies or one in particular that's new, two new topical therapies. So Give yep. us your perspective on those possibilities, I guess I would ask. Yep. yep, I totally agree that we've come a long way, baby. And I mean, it's we're at the point now with our best drugs that we get 100% improvement. We get fully clear skin in more than half of the patients. That just blows me away when I think about it from where we were 20 years ago, 10 years ago. You're right. And our ability with these different new topicals to maybe clean up the little bit that's left in the per poor person who's only 96% better and not 100% better. I think, you know, there's still new drugs being developed and there's drugs that are like on the cusp of getting approved, the biologic drugs. And as you, you alluded to the new oral, that's very, very attractive that patients are getting excited about. Wow. You mean, Dr. Corman, there's an oral drug I can use now that you don't diss that you'll have nice things to say. Absolutely, there is one. Because before I would just say, don't waste your time on any of the oral drugs. That's basically how I'm kind of like in their faces a little bit in that, in that regard. But I think there's always room for more improvement, right? We haven't cured psoriasis, right? We're not the uh, infectious disease docs who, who can cure hepatitis C with just eight weeks of therapy, right? So, I mean, it's not an infectious disease, so it's not a fully analogous, but but it would be nice if we can keep getting more improvement. And I think maybe we can. And I, so I'm very, very sanguine and very optimistic about our future and our ability to continue to make strides in taking care of our patients. Collaborative care is key. It's crucial. As I, as I say to my residents, they need to pick up the damn phone and talk to their colleagues. And that's, that's a hard thing to get across to people, but everybody's overwhelmed and they're too busy and it's too much work and, and it's the right thing to do pick up the phone, talk to them, make a decision together about what you might do that might be a little outside of the box if you need to combine two things that normally maybe nobody has ever studied before, but maybe in that particular patient, it's the right move. Yeah, that is so well said, and I agree completely. And I think you're speaking my same language. Having residents in the clinic, one of the things that we want to teach them is to pick up the phone, to collaborate with our colleagues. I think it's so important. I want to close with kind of a broad question. 
as we have moved into an era where we can completely clear people's skin, as I recall broadly, for Atanercept was one of our first key TNF inhibitors. I think we had about a 10% chance of clearing the skin within a year. And now we have interleukin-23 blockers where there's a 50, 60% chance of clearing the skin completely. What is your perception? Again, I'll take this a little step further of where we've come. And what do you think about the new technologies. Now, we have a new oral agent uh, that is a tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor. We have a couple of new topicals. Uh, the one is to print her off. The other one is uh, reflumolast, different mechanisms of action. How do you think they fit into your toolbox? And have you had the opportunity to use these new agents? And I think we might even just have one more biologic coming uh, to complete this package of 11 or so that we have FDA approved. And I think we can close with that. What yeah, are your so, thoughts on the new agents? Yeah, so, so I love the new agents, and I'm using all of them. I'm using both topicals. I'm using the new oral, and I've just started using the new oral recently, so I haven't seen anybody back, so I don't know the answer, but I know how excited people are when, when we tell them that, well, here's new medicine that's out that I'm very enthusiastic about, and I want to put you on, and it's not a shot. Oh, Dr. Corman, I heard you only prescribe shots. Everybody told me. Well, I used to, but now I got another piece of great therapy in my armamentarium and you seem like the right person for this. So I think that, and the two topicals I've been, I've been thrilled with, with Topinarov. I haven't used Reformalest as much. I've used more Topinarov, but so I've used all of these and I am excited about all of them. And I'm, I'm excited about the other last biologic agent that's like on the cusp of getting approved. We hope, we think maybe, maybe, maybe. So a lot of good stuff, a lot of action. I mean, you could almost argue they should write another guidelines now with all the stuff that we just got in a very short amount of time. I don't think it'll happen, but I think that, you know, it will happen at some point, but it won't happen tomorrow. Like I just said, like write a new one now. Yeah, I think the Academy is also looking at trying to do mini guidelines in between. You know, we have these gaps of six or eight or 10 years and then writing smaller guidelines in between so that we all stay up to date and at least have some of the guidance based on a lot of the, the data that is reviewed in order to create those guidelines. Because for all of us to sit at the end of the day and read every one of the articles is, is a big challenge. I have to tell you, Neil, I thank you so much for doing this. This has been fabulous. You are great. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about psoriasis and some of the gaps in research and talk about comorbidities. And so thank you very much. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. And it was a pleasure talking with you, Brad, because you're so knowledgeable in this field as well. Sometimes these types of interviews are kind of like a one-way affair. So this was definitely a give and take. So it made it even more fun. Well, for our audience, thank you very much. And till the next Dialogues in Dermatology. Thank you to Bristol Myers Squibb for supporting this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.